Amen. How can I get into heaven? There is no other question that is more important in a person's heart, whether they like to admit it or not. How do I know this? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11a says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. I was raised in the Roman Catholic religion. I was a really good Roman Catholic because I really wanted to make sure I go to heaven when I died. I did many good works and deeds so that the likelihood of me going to heaven when I died was very, very high. Some of the good deeds and some of the good things I did included giving my spare change to the homeless person I would encounter, not missing church or doing any work on Sundays, and going to confession before Easter and Christmas, and the list goes on and on. I was very confident that I was okay with God in my religious ways until I came face to face with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his word. Now, though my shock of what God required of me to be made right with him was very great, it didn't come close to the shock that Nicodemus experienced in John chapter 3 when he too encountered the Son of God. Please turn with me to John chapter 3. And this evening, I just want us to take a very high look and a very high overview at the first 21 verses of this glorious chapter, which is the dialogue between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. Tonight, I just want to provide you with an outline that will just help us to understand the very basics to answer the question, how can I get into heaven? To help us better look at this outline, I have broken down the 21 verses into eight small digestible chunks. So we're going to look first at the contemplation, then the condition, the concern, the condescension, the crucifixion, the command, the consequence, and then finally, the call. So, Let's look together at verses 1 and 2, the contemplation. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus was no ordinary Jew. He was a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, but he was one that was part of the Sanhedrin. Now, Pharisees were the most zealous, pious, educated religious Jews for the Mosaic law. They strongly influenced the common people of Israel, especially those who, like Nicodemus, were part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the main ruling body of the Jews, or the Jewish Supreme Court that ruled during that Greco-Roman period. It consisted of the high priest, the chief priests, elders, and scribes for a total of 71 people and executed both civil and criminal jurisdiction based on Jewish law. So Nicodemus was not just a Pharisee and not just a member of the Sanhedrin, but as verse 10 tells us, he was the teacher of Israel, 
the head theologian who knew the scriptures better than anyone, did everything better than anyone, and was seen as the most faithful, reverent, and righteous man in all of Israel. Now, he just had one tiny problem. He isn't 100% sure he's going to heaven if he died that very night. As verse 2 tells us, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night when there's no one around to impress and no one around to appear righteous and holy before, just a man who is honest with himself coming before the one true God with the question of how can I get into heaven? Nicodemus is terrified that all his piety, all his holiness is just not quite enough to make him escape the imminent wrath of God. He's afraid because he knows he has not been perfected in the love of God. And he knows that if he died that night, he would spend eternity in hell. 1 John 4.18 states, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, I want to ask you, when you are alone at night, with no one to impress, no one to convince about your position before God, do you know with certainty where you will spend eternity if you died this very night tonight? Is there even a drop of concern that your holiness, that your godliness may just possibly, possibly not be quite enough to save you from God's judgment and eternal torment in hell? Is your faith expressed as trying to impress God or to thank God? Faith that tries to impress God is only a symptom of an unregenerate heart that fears the judgment of God, yet is too proud to submit to the will of God. Now, knowing that Jesus was from God, Nicodemus knew Jesus had both the knowledge and the authority to answer his question. So let's look now at Jesus' condition for going to heaven in verses 3 to 8 in response to Nicodemus' contemplation. So the condition, verses 3 to 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Now Jesus proves he is God himself to Nicodemus by displaying in verse 3 that he knows what Nicodemus is thinking in his heart by answering his question before Nicodemus even speaks a word. Just a few verses earlier, if you look up in John 2.25, we read that Jesus had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, 
for he himself knew what was in man. Psalm 139 verse 4 states, Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. Jesus clearly states in verse 3 that the condition for going to heaven is that one must, not should, but must be born again. This is the theological term of regeneration, the second work of God after election in salvation. Now, this truth and requirement is described also in 2 Corinthians 5.17 as, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Literally, what this means is that one must be recreated as a new person with new thinking, new desires, new passions, new loves, new habits, and a new purpose in life, all of which are centered on doing the will of the Father and pleasing the Son. Not only this, but as this verse says, the old things must have passed away. All of the old things about your thinking and doing, your man-made religious traditions and things you used to depend on to impress God must be done away with. Why? Why must one be born again? Well, because Ephesians 2.1 states that not only that anyone who is not born again is dead in their transgressions and sins. Now understand, this is not partially dead. It's not mostly dead, but fully dead. And as Psalm 115.17 makes clear, a spiritually dead person cannot be in the eternal living kingdom of Yahweh. This verse reads, It is not the dead that praise Yah, and it is none of those who go down to the silence. Now, last time I checked, it is impossible for a dead person to come back to life on his own. And it is equally impossible for a person to give birth to himself. Not only that, but you or I contributed absolutely nothing to our physical birth. Our physical birth happened to us and not by us, and it was from someone else, our parents. Since everything in the physical realm points to an eternal spiritual truth, this is also true with respect to our spiritual birth. Jesus' answer to how a man can be born again of himself is very simple. He cannot. Jesus doesn't say that it is hard for a man to be born again or that it is very difficult. He simply says that it is impossible. This is exactly the answer Jesus gives to his disciples when they ask him in Matthew 19, 25, then who can be saved? And in the first half of Matthew 19, 26, Jesus responds in this way, with people, this is impossible. Now, what blessings, what holy deeds, what spiritual disciplines do you look at in your life to try and justify that you are impressing God. And because of this, he has saved you or he's keeping you saved. Are there any? Are there many? Now going back to John 3 and verse 4, we see that Nicodemus perfectly understands that Jesus' condition to be born again 
to be saved is impossible. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying because rabbis always used physical word pictures to explain spiritual truths. In verse 5, Jesus reiterates this point by saying that one must be born of water, meaning he must be washed clean of his old and dead self through repentance and be given new life, born of the Spirit to go to heaven. There's absolutely nothing we in the physical realm can do to merit the spiritual eternal kingdom of God as verse 6 communicates. Here also, what the Holy Spirit says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. And Jesus doesn't just leave Nicodemus there. He further drives home this point in verses 7 and 8. Look at it with me. Like his physical birth, Man cannot do anything to will or work out his own spiritual birth any more than he can do to will or to work out the coming and going of the wind. This is something that happens to you, not by you. Now, do you truly believe this? Have you really accepted this truth that our Lord makes so unmistakably clear? Or are you also both shocked and concerned, like Nicodemus. From the contemplation to the condition, we arrive at the concern in verses 9 to 12. So let's look at the concern in verses 9 to 12. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, Nicodemus, being the teacher of Israel, should be the last person on earth to be shocked at this condition for going to heaven. In verse 10, we see that Jesus does not excuse him for his ignorance. So we do not have time to look at this tonight in detail. The requirement for being born again as the only way that one can be in God's eternal presence is not a New Testament condition. This has always been God's doing and God's requirement, which is clearly stated in many parts of the Old Testament. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, thirty six twenty six to twenty seven, thirty seven fourteen. Jeremiah 31, 31, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, if Nicodemus, who did not have the full counsel of God, as we do in the 66 books of the Bible, had no excuse to understand and believe this great truth, do you think we do? Now, please listen carefully. Concern for one's spiritual condition can very quickly turn into spiritual ignorance, resulting in useless religiosity when it is not informed by the truth regarding God's infinitely holy and righteous character and requirements. Let me say that again. 
concern for one's spiritual condition can quickly turn into spiritual ignorance, resulting in useless religiosity when it is not informed by the truth regarding God's infinitely holy and righteous character and requirements. Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin, and many of the Jewish people did not and still do not believe what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do I know they didn't believe this? Because of Romans 10, verses 2 to 3. For I, writes Paul, testify about them, the Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In his concern regarding the infinite gap that exists between God's perfect holiness and righteousness and man's deadness, wretchedness and sinfulness, Spiritually dead man in a very sad and unsuccessful attempt seeks to grasp for God by trying to lower God's righteousness while trying to elevate man's. This is not just foolishness. This is insanity. Now Jesus makes it unmistakably clear in verses 11 and 12 that if one doesn't accept and truly believe the basics about who God is, who man is, the infinite gap that exists between the two, and that man must be born again as a work of God alone, then it is impossible to be saved and have the Spirit of God and the mind of Christ to be able to believe heavenly things and, and accept the depths of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians two fourteen to 16. Now, do you, do you truly understand and believe this? Or do you just say that you do to appear theologically correct or pious before others, as Nicodemus did? But when he was alone at night with God himself, demonstrated that he really did not trust in what he mistakenly believed. Now, if you truly do understand and believe the reality of these first 12 verses, what you should think and feel if All we had was these 12 verses is a sense of utter hopelessness, desperation, and absolute spiritual bankruptcy. If this is the honest conclusion you have arrived at after these 12 verses, you are extremely blessed of God. Some of the first words recorded that were preached by our Lord are in Matthew 5 verse 3 where he states, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only when you realize your spiritual bankruptcy will you truly and desperately call out to God, just like the tax collector in Luke 18, 13, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Psalm 51, 17 states, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what is then the only possible way for the poor in spirit to not be despised by God and to inherit his kingdom? There's only one way. God must come down to take man up. 
Look at verse 13. From the concern, we quickly look at the condescension. The condescension in verse 13. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Because no mere mortal has ever or will ever go to heaven based on his own doing, for God's redemptive plan to be fulfilled, God had to come down to take man up. However, simply crying out for God's mercy still will not pay the debt that we, because of our sin, owe to God eternal death in hell, nor will it give us the perfect righteousness that God demands to be in His presence. In other words, being poor in spirit alone will not result in being born again. So why did God condescend in the person of Jesus Christ? To do both of these things in our place for His glory because it is just as impossible for us to pay our infinite debt of sin and acquire His infinite righteousness as it is to be born again of ourselves. How did God pay this infinite debt? While giving us His infinite righteousness to all who would ever believe in Him. Well, let's look at this in verses 14 and 15. From the condescension, we look at the crucifixion. Verse 14 reads, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Now, as you may or may not recall, in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, in response to one of the many acts of impatience and grumbling, by the sons of Israel against God during their long 40-year detour to the promised land in the wilderness, verse 6 says that Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This was a direct and divine punishment for their sin of not trusting in God alone and not being thankful for His grace and mercy. Now, in response to God's merciful and gracious command, Numbers 21 verse 9 says that Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it happened that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, bronze or brass is what the altar of sacrifice was made, where burnt offerings of animal sacrifices were presented to the Lord in obedience as a symbolic substitute for the sinner. Bronze is a color that signifies atonement or judgment. This clear Old Testament picture of the cross of Christ communicates the great theological truth known as penal substitutionary atonement. And what this means is that for the deadly venomous sting of death, which is our sin nature to be cured and swapped for the new birth, the only sinless life giver, Jesus Christ himself, had to be suspended between heaven and earth on the cross, being judged for our sin in our place, taking on himself our deadly venomous sting of sin, leading to his death, so that when we too look to him alone, we would receive his life in exchange. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 states that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, this is the most unfair exchange that has or will ever take place. Man's old deadness exchanged for God's new birth by faith alone. John 3.15 is clearly pictured by John 12.24. Truly, truly, says Jesus, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Like seed that contains within it new plant life must die to give new life to the fruit it bears, Jesus, the container and source of all new life, had to die to bear the fruit of new spiritual life in all who are in him by faith alone. Now to prove he is the source of all life and the source of the new birth, Jesus rose from the dead three days later and confirms that all who trust in his work alone will be born again, as he states in John fourteen nineteen, Because I live, you will live also. So how then does the desperate, spiritually bankrupt sinner realize God has given him the new birth that is necessary to go to heaven? By understanding, hoping, trusting in the perfect life, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, alone, alone. From the contemplation to the condition, to the concern, we had the necessity of the condescension and crucifixion. And just quickly, we have the command, the command in verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, verse 18 qualifies that an understanding and acceptance of all 17 verses that come before it is not only an absolute necessity to truly believe in Jesus so that one may be born again, But this verse serves as a stark command to put one's trust in these glorious verses as the only means of being saved from God's judgment. In the proper context of verse 18, the famously used verse 16 becomes more than just a nice bumper sticker or a resurrection Sunday card you sent to your grandmother. These three verses are not just a nice piece of information. They're not just a call. They're not just a suggestion. But they're a command that must be obeyed urgently and fearfully. In Acts 17, 30-31, the Holy Spirit boldly declares the following. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined 
having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now, some of you may be thinking, what if I just can't honestly believe this? What if I can't believe that I can do anything of myself to be born again? Why should God judge me? If after I can't do anything to be born again, why would he hold me accountable? As Romans 9, 18 to to 19 state, if he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Now, if this is your reasoning in thinking this evening, I will be praying for you that God would have mercy on you because this may be evidence that you may not correctly understand, know, and or believe in the biblical Jesus and that there may be a possibility you may not even be born again. Now John 3, verses 18 to 20, make it crystal clear that nobody, nobody is cast into hell because they were not elect. No, they are cast there because they love the darkness rather than the light, loving their sin more than Christ. Not only this, but as the second half of verse 18 says, this line of thinking may be evidence that you may already be facing the consequences and judgment of your unbelief. Lastly, let's go from the command to believe to the consequence of unbelief in verses 19 to 21. Let's look at the consequence. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. Now, I beg you, please, please listen carefully. Unbelief leads to judgment, not only eternally in hell for sin, but in the present moment when one rejects this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time a person does not accept the truth of these verses, he comes under God's immediate judgment. What is that judgment? Well, look at verse 19. God gives man over to his own love of sin while making it harder for him to believe the light of the gospel to a point where he may no longer be able to believe. This is the terrifying truth of Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, where man who has no excuse purposely and willfully rejects God, and in response, God judges them for their rejection to a point where the judgment is terminal, whereby man's mind is unable to repent and believe. Now, the terrifying thing is that, as if that wasn't terrifying enough, the terrifying thing is that man does not know when this will take place. And if his last rejection of the glorious truths of this chapter is the last time before God may fully harden him to a permanent love of sin beyond repentance, would the impossibility to be born again as the scriptures say God did to Esau in Hebrews 12, verses 16 to 17. Now, are you putting off understanding and believing these glorious truths which 
humble man to dust and glorify God to infinite heights? Are you? So what should you do? What should you do if after hearing Jesus speak to you as he did to Nicodemus, you are not fully sure you are going to heaven if you are to die tonight? Well, Psalm 95, 7b to 8a say this, today, 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 if you hear his voice, do not, do not harden your hearts. Today, you have heard his voice and you are commanded to believe these words of our Lord. Believe them out of sheer desperation, knowing that there are no other words that can give life, for he is the word of life, and whoever believes will in him have eternal life. But one may say, what if I realize my spiritual bankruptcy, and I desperately throw myself upon God's mercy, and he doesn't have mercy on me, and give me the new birth? What then? What are my options then? I close with the words of our Lord from Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, don't believe me. Don't believe me. Believe him who is speaking to you. What happened to Nicodemus in the end? Well, John 19.39 implies that in the end, he did come to Jesus and did find rest for his soul and was born again as evidenced by Nicodemus risking all that he had and all that he was to identify himself with Jesus by anointing his dead body and participating in his burial. Why did he do this? Because Jesus says that all, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. Listen, if God could give the new birth to the most religious and hypocritical man in Israel, he can do the same to you. Because with God, not man, All things 